Happy Epiphany. This is Pastor Michael Zarling. And Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And when you are listening to this, it will be at least the Epiphany of Our Lord on January 6th. And it's something that's very special in my heart and our congregation, uh, since our congregation's name before we merged and became Water of Life was Epiphany Lutheran Church. And so when you are in a church that's named Epiphany, you better have an Epiphany Festival. I thought it was the first English Lutheran Church of the Epiphany. No, there was no first. It was no. just the. So what Nathan's referring to is the history of our congregation is that in 1927, our members who were members then at First Evangelical Lutheran Church in downtown Racine, uh, they wanted to do mission work on the edge of town, which was two miles away. And now the edge of town is like three miles from here. Yeah. And uh, also downtown at First Evan, it was the first German Evangelical Lutheran Church. And then so our members named this church uh, because it was founded in January during the Epiphany season, uh, the English Evangelical Lutheran Church of the Epiphany, because it was now going to be uh, founded using the English language. And then they decided that they would, in their wisdom at that time, they were going to build the church inside of a brand new neighborhood, which seemed really good at the time. And make the church look like a house. Yes. So our <laughs> our church uh, in the exterior looks like an English Tudor house with the angles and so forth, just a really big house unless they see the big sign. And that's where, when I came here almost 20 years ago, it was a small sign, and it still said the English Evangelical Lutheran Church of the Epiphany, even though everyone called it Epiphany. Now we have a lit-up sign with our logo and everything for Water of Life. Uh, but when people come into the church, I explain to them that it's like the TARDIS from Doctor Who, that it's a lot bigger on the inside than it looks like on the outside. And very few people understand that reference. That was a good reference. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Uh, but Epiphany Festival, and we are celebrating the Epiphany of our Lord on Saturday evening. If you're listening to this in the morning or afternoon, you can come to the service if you are in southeastern Wisconsin, or you can watch it online at our Facebook page for Water of Life, again, 630 on the 6th. Or you can always watch it afterwards, too. And we have your good friend, uh, seminary professor Noah Hedrick, that is going to be preaching for the, for the service as well. Okay, so then the Epiphany Festival is Saturday, January 6th, and then so Sunday is January 7th, which is the first Sunday after the Epiphany. And that's important because the first Sunday after the Epiphany is always the celebration of the baptism of our Lord. Before we get into the scripture readings, I wanted to read the prayer of the day because it summarizes everything so well, much like most of the prayers of the day do. We pray, Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan, you proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Keep us who are baptized into Christ faithful in our calling as your children and make us heirs with him of everlasting life. 
through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Then we'll go to the gospel lesson and we'll finish up with the Romans lesson since you're preaching on that text. So Mark chapter 1. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, One more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. I am well pleased with you. So going to that first verse, Mark writes, John appeared. Uh, so I was wondering, Nathan, is this like he was transported in like on Star Trek? He just appeared? Sure, we can we can go with that if you want. I, I, I don't think... That's what it's talking about exactly, but so what does I mean, it what does it mean? Maybe your her, your hermeneutics a little bit better than mine. So, um, I think it it's talking about that's this was the beginning of John's ministry. Um, it also, I mean, we've made this joke before. Mark doesn't always have the time to go into the details. Mark wants to get the story out there, and so he's like, "Well, John, John's ministry began." Um, but I think one of the things we could say is like. It seems like John just kind of started preaching in the wilderness. I don't know if there was no one there around him. There must have been some people for the word to spread, but it seems like he just kind of started this ministry um, and didn't do a lot of lead up to it. Right. And with that, too, I'm wondering if Mark is referring to that John appeared, that it doesn't seem like neither Jesus nor John went to rabbi school. You know, that they weren't, they weren't. Uh, in school learning all of these things like the other religious leaders? I think that's a safe assumption. I don't remember now which gospel account it was that we had in Advent, uh, but it does seem like the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders had no idea who John was. And if he had gone to one of the rabbinical schools, um, I think someone would have known him, but it doesn't seem like they knew him or even the message that he was proclaiming. Right. So that's that's why I think Mark writes, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John appeared. And what's he doing out in the wilderness? He's baptizing and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's something that I talk about a lot, that John, he's not a preacher that's wearing skinny jeans and a plaid, untucked shirt like you might see preachers today. He is preaching a message of repentance. Now, he's not wearing an alb and a stole like Nathan and I do, uh, but he is countercultural as opposed to preachers that might be uh, trying to look more like the culture. And with that, uh, I know Nathan had talked to me earlier this week about something he had read in the Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly, which is something that our pastors read put out by our seminary professors. So if you want to touch on, on what you had mentioned to me. 
Yeah, so this is from the introduction to volume 120, and it's talking about faithfulness, and it's referencing a Catholic writer who had talked about the decline of membership in the Catholic Church, and, you know, that all Christianity, especially in America, is facing a decline in numbers, and how that may be a natural process, that as we're entering into a time of renewed persecution, most likely, that you know the church is becoming leaner that you know the faithful are being are being sifted and talking about contemporary worship um in the context of faithfulness um the writer to this says let us take a hard look at what we are doing on sunday morning this is emphatically not the time to cater to the expectations of the surrounding culture truman says in other words, if there was ever was a good time for that kind of worship in which the astonishingly relatable pastor takes the congregation on a journey to new heights of self-expression, or that it feels like a Coldplay concert followed by a TED Talk, this isn't it. Let our worship communicate dignity, grace, and such a deep sense of the holy that visitors to our services will conclude that God is really among us. Yeah, and with that... You know, to think about which churches are growing and which are declining. And as Nathan said, almost all churches and church bodies in America are declining. We're kind of on the tail end of the height of Christianity in America. And part of that is just because we've become so lukewarm like the Laodiceans in the book of Revelation that Jesus says he'll spit out of his mouth and wondering if Jesus has a good goober working up because... We and the Christian church in America have been lukewarm for a long time. And so you see those churches and church bodies that have uh, tried to be with the culture, those are the ones that are bleeding money and bleeding members in churches. And yet there are churches that are uh, conservative Christian and holding on to the foundation of Christ and his doctrines. Those are the ones that, if any churches are growing, and any church bodies are growing, those are the ones that are. And for whatever reason, God at this time, he is blessing our congregation. Uh, the other day I spent three hours uh, just following up with all of our visitors from Christmas Eve. And neither you or I did a whole lot of outreach, but our members did. And, and then people just have come back to the church. And it's not because we are contemporary, because I think, Nathan, you and I would be the opposite of contemporary. And one of the things that I've noticed and I talk about a lot is in my 20 years here at uh, Epiphany and now Water of Life is I have personally become more historical, more traditional, more Lutheran, that we're countercultural in that we're doing things that the ancient Christian church have done, like the Epiphany Festival, like a processional cross. We'll talk about the Paschal Candle a little bit. Every Sunday, communion, uh, those kinds of things, uh, you know, ascension service, all those kinds of things that are different than the world does, and yet uh, it, it demonstrates our traditional Christianity that ties us back to the saints that have come before us. And I think that is something 
powerful because it is countercultural because so much of our culture is about tearing down the things of the past that everything old is bad that we need to have everything new that new is always better and how we've destroyed some of that foundation and people are looking for a connection to the past um there's been studies that have shown that um i know my generation, which is now getting old, the millennials were, you know, the talk a couple years ago, and that was something that many millennials found missing, that there wasn't meaning in many of the other things, and they were looking for churches that had traditional values. They were looking for meaning because they weren't finding it anywhere else in the culture. Yeah, and with that connection to the past, just want to encourage everyone that's listening to this podcast to also listen to the hymn devotions that Nathan and I and the two pastors at First at First Evan downtown do uh, every week on the Raised with Jesus podcast. That those hymns are ties to the past. Some of them are new. Uh, some of them are very old. And I was going to add that too. We're not certainly not saying that nothing new can be good. Um, there are many, as you've mentioned, there are many new hymns that have been written in the last 50, the last 20 years that are valuable additions to the corpus of Lutheran hymnody, um, and we use those as well. And it's more you evaluate new things and see, are these faithful to Scripture? That's the criteria that we judge by, not whether it sounds good or looks good, but is it faithful to Scripture? And with that, I'm forgetting what hymn are we singing in place of the psalm because on January 9th because our congregation is hosting our Shoreland Pastors Conference. Oh, you don't recall? Uh, it's how good it is. Yeah. It's the, the hymn version of Psalm 133. Yeah. So it's an ancient song, how good it is, but do you happen to know like when that was written? Because it's new to our hymnal. It's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's a Keith Getty Okay. So it's within the last, for sure, 30 years, probably later than that. Yeah, and so something that's that's very scriptural, and, you know, it's based on a psalm, much like Isaac Watts' hymns were. Uh, a side note with Isaac Watts, because he lived in a time when the church did not want, and he was from the Methodist church, did not want or did not allow him writers to write things that were not based on, uh, directly from Scripture, and so much of him, his hymns are paraphrases of Psalms. 2012 is well, when it was written. So that is a brand new hymn, and yet uh, it'll be really cool when we have our pastors' conference with about 30 pastors, maybe 27 of them that can sing, and how, how nice it will be for them filling up our sanctuary at our Caledonia campus that seats about 100 and has pretty good acoustics, and those guys will sing out pretty well. Uh, what does it mean when uh, Mark recounts that John says, one more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I think we might have talked about this in one of the Advent readings, um, that John, John clearly understood his ministry, that he was the forerunner, that everything he was doing was pointing forward to Jesus, and that he had a clear understanding of that, that he was not out there to get glory for himself, um, but he was there as a servant pointing the way to Jesus. And 
as a model for all of us in the public ministry that it's not about us. It's about pointing people to Christ. Yeah, and that humility, that's something that when I do marriage counseling, a lot of times when husbands and wives don't get along to, along with each other, uh, they come in and will talk to me, and then I have started talking to them. The very first thing is humility. Uh, too often we're proud and we want our way. We don't want to uh, say or, say we're sorry. We don't want to offer forgiveness when the other marriage partner is sorry. Uh, so it all comes down to humility, and we can see John the Baptist with his humility with Jesus. And with this, he says, Mark writes down, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan, just as Jesus came up out of the water. You're a better Greek scholar than I am. What does that mean, he came up out of the water? Does that mean he was all the way under the water, so he was immersed? Does it mean that he was maybe in up to his waist, up to his ankles, and then he walked up onto the shore, and that's when he saw the Holy Spirit come down. You know, you could have given me a heads up that you were going to ask me well, something you can look about it up. the I'll Greek text. Yeah, it. you do that while I get the Greek out here. Okay, so he came up out of the water. Part, part of what I do in this podcast is I just try and throw Nathan so he doesn't know what to say or I get him laughing so that he can't say anything. So what I teach on baptism with this, and we're going to be teaching a class on baptism on Sunday using my adult confirmation class that I have rewritten for our adult Bible studies at the two campuses, is when this verse comes up, uh, I will talk about how uh, the Greek can mean either one. It just says he came up out of the water, that he was all the way immersed or that he was, like I said, up to his waist or up to his ankles because where John is baptizing is the southern end of, of the Jordan River. So he's going out into the desert. It's very different from when I was in Israel uh, over a decade ago and I saw lots of people being baptized in the Jordan River, but that was all on the north side where the waters are just coming in from the mountains and so forth. So it's deep. You know, people can go in up to their waist or even up to their chest and then, you know, be immersed. But where John is baptizing is in the desert, and that's why you'll often see uh, ancient art of John baptizing where Jesus is in his, to his ankles or to his waist, and that's why you'll see, again, John with a shell in his hand to baptize because you got to get the water up to people's heads. But then I'll, I'll take them, uh, the people in Bible study, to Acts, where Philip is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And there it says that they, plural, they came up out of the water. And so what I teach people is if those that, you know, those Christians and the churches and church by Baptists and so forth, they have to have Jesus being immersed to uh, give power to their and a reason for their uh, immersion, that Jesus was baptized and he was immersed because he came up out of the water. He was all the way under the water. And then he broke the surface. But then, if that's true, if that Greek word means that, then it also has to mean that when Philip baptized the Ethiopian, he was under the water. And I've baptized someone with an immersion baptism. And I'll tell you, I was in cold water. It was September. We were in a pool. 
I didn't get under the water because you can't really speak very well unless you're Aquaman under the water. So it, it can mean, yeah, he was under the water, but it can't, it doesn't have to mean only that. It, it's the Greek word anabino, which just means to go up. I think it's the same verb that's often used for going up to Jerusalem. Um, so it could mean coming out of the water. It could also mean like going up, like you're going out of the river back up onto the bank. Um, so yeah, that's not, that is not the word you would use to build a case for immersion baptism because it it doesn't have that meaning in it. Yeah. And then as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. They're schizo in the Greek, a schism, you know, and it's not just that the heavens opened. I mean, he uses a Greek word here, you know, it's a tearing, it's a rending. It's the same word I believe Mark uses to talk about the curtain being torn in two uh, on Good Friday in the temple when Jesus dies. Or again, talking about hymns, O Savior, rend the heavens wide. Uh, But they are talking about Judgment Day and coming down. But this time, uh, God is not coming with judgment like he did in tearing the heavens open, say with Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood and coming down or when he sent the angels down to look at uh, the Tower of Babel, or he looked at he looked down and then in judgment. This is not judgment. This is grace uh, and pleasure. And then the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And again, when I teach on baptism, I talk about here are the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is in heaven. Looking down on his son, the son is in the water, and the Holy Spirit is the dove hovering over the waters. And that this is very similar then to the creation of the world. You have the Father that is speaking, the Son is the word that is being spoken, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. I taught a Bible study uh, last week just because we're kind of in a in an odd place. Um with some of the series we were planning on doing, and we needed a standalone. Uh, so I did one on half of the Athanasian Creed um, and trying to teach the Trinity. And there's a point where, in explaining the Trinity, you say, well, we don't worship three gods, we worship one God, but they're three persons. And you really can't go much farther than that explanation because you start wandering into heresy very quickly. We just have to speak as Scripture speaks. Yeah, and when it's talking about the Trinity, the very first of my adult confirmation classes that I've written on the liturgy, the Lutheran worship service, is on the invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I talked to the adult confirmands to say, we begin our Lutheran worship service the same way the Bible begins. Genesis 1 and 2, the Father was there speaking. We have to look at John 1, 1 to see that the, what he was speaking was the word, which is Jesus, the Son, and then the Spirit is hovering over the waters. But what I talk about then is God does not explain the Trinity in the beginning. He just says, here I am. This is who I am. Here we go. And that's the way we begin our Lutheran worship. Here's God. We're uh, coming in his name, the triune God's name. This is it. Here we go. Anything else that you want to talk about specifically with this text? No, not with the, uh, 
I don't think with the Mark text at all. Okay. So before we move on to the epistle lesson, I uh, just want to talk about some baptisms. So, you know, you can talk about this because you're going to be, I think, mentioning this in your sermon about some of the baptisms that you have done recently. And there, again, thinking of how the Lord is blessing us at Water of Life, kind of like a mission congregation. We've had a lot of baptisms recently, and uh, we've got one on Sunday, and it'll be the granddaughter of prospects, so not even members, so the granddaughter. And then the whole family will be here. They probably haven't been in church in years or decades. And then the following week, it will be a dad and his daughter, and the way that came about is that Brian is the uh, the fiancé of one of our members, and he had come to church once or twice in our Caledonia campus, and then before church, he said, Pastor, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, okay, I got time right now. And then he said, well, uh, I'd like to become a member, and I want to be baptized. And I told him, oh, the hair in my arms is standing up. And then... A month from now, so February 4th, we're going to be having our Youth Sunday, and we have a Chinese student that uh, desires to become a member, and then his host family said, well, you have to check to see if he's baptized. And I said, that's a good thing. I kind of assumed that he was, but I shouldn't have because he's from China, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that though he has been given the gift of faith since he said around six years old, that his family baptized him. So that may be coming up, and we chose that day specifically because that's our Youth Sunday, and we've got you know 30 youth just at Shoreland Lutheran High School, and they're going to be singing and playing the music and so forth. And I thought it'd be really neat to have them witness his baptism. So if you want to talk about some of the baptisms that you've conducted recently. Yes, I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago. Um, we have a an older member um, who's one of our shut-ins, whose mother had recently passed away, and going through uh, her records, realized that she had never been baptized. Um, They had grown up some other denomination that did not practice infant baptism, and she had been dedicated, I believe was the term, and so when they had become Lutheran, uh, her mom had simply put in the date of her dedication for her baptism. Um, and knowing this, she expressed a desire. She wanted to be baptized, and so I was able to baptize her. And then several days later, I uh, was able to go to the hospital and baptize a tiny infant that had just been born in the hospital there. So to have two almost opposite ends of life with baptism and then to give the blessing there and then what I talk about in my sermon is after going from the hospital, I went to the visit one of our other shut-ins who is in hospice and was able to minister her and the comfort that is there for believers as they are dying to know that they are buried with Christ through their baptism. And and then with that too, that reminds me of talking about the amount of water to use in baptism, because. Uh, like I said, with ancient art that you'll often see John the Baptist using a shell for baptizing. So one of the art paintings that we have at our Racine campus, 
We have John baptizing Jesus. He's in the water up to his waist, and then he has a shell in his hand. And so I use a shell for baptism, and I get people pretty wet. Uh, there's a, usually a lot of water on the font. Nathan, when he looked at the occasional services book that I've used, it's uh, there's water damage on the pages of baptism. Okay, uh, and yet I think of one of the young ladies that I had baptized at our Jesus Care service. Thankfully, uh, one of our ladies who works with special needs people had talked to Dana, the one being baptized, and she was very uncomfortable with water on her head. So she knew that going in and told me, and so I baptized her with just a drop or two, just put the water on my fingers and then made the sign of the cross and water on her head. Uh, I've baptized, like you, uh, children in the hospital and the NICU, even in incubators, and then just one drop of sterilized water on the forehead. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in class, when we talk about the amount of water because people often talk about immersion baptism versus the Lutheran way of sprinkling or pouring, I'll tell the story about a Methodist minister that was talking to a Lutheran minister. And the Lutheran minister had asked the Methodist minister, who believes in immersion baptism, uh, can you just baptize the ankles? Methodist ministers, no. Can you baptize just up to the waist? No. Can you baptize just up to the shoulders? No. Well, can you baptize over the head? Yes, the Methodist said. And then the Lutheran minister said, see, the only part that's important is the head. <laughs> so that is why we baptize. No, that's not, you know, that's not why we baptize in the head. Uh, but it's not the amount of water. It is God's word with the water. One of my favorite things that one of my classmates had found when we were studying baptism. Um, I think last year, um, you can find these, you know, as, you know, short videos on the internet is the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church practices full immersion baptism with infants. Yes. And the priests are often very aggressive <laughs> with the babies because they, they have these larger baptismal fonts, but they, they dunk I'm not describing it well, but they dunk the infants, but they do it three times. So it's in, out, in, out, in, out. And these babies come up spluttering. They're usually naked. They're usually naked. Yeah, the, the babies, not the priests or anything <laughs> like that. But exactly, because we were in Greece, and we saw one of those, I don't know what they call it, but we would say a font. But it's about, you know, maybe the size of our font, that height, but then it's wide. It's probably like yeah. three feet wide in a deep bowl. Very ornate, yes. probably brass or, or crystal. I've seen crystal, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then yeah, I've seen videos. Oh, that's it. We were, Shelly and I and another couple, because we had gone, uh, it was a pastor's trip with their wives, and we were then shopping in the the town in Greece, and we, we were asking one of the, the shop owners what this is because we had seen it in the church and no one had explained that the piece of furniture to us. And then the shop owner said, oh, that's for baptisms. And then he showed us all these pictures of his grandson being baptized. It was, it was good after the first or second. We didn't need to see 25. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is, it is very, uh, you know, it's a very cool baptism. And then with that, too, talking about baptismal fonts, when I teach the class on baptism, I'll often show 
pictures of fonts, and one of them is that I had taken in St. John's Church uh, in Greece, you know, the actual church that was, was built for St. John. Uh, you know, obviously it's, it's crumbled and so forth, but they still have the ruins. But this is not a font that's up from the ground. It's uh, under the floor that you walk into it, and then it's you, in up to your waist and so forth, and it's in the form of a cross. For my, so we always have a slide that accompanies our sermon, and usually something with the with the theme of our sermon. And so, this week I have two. I have two pictures. I have one. It's an ancient baptistry that is going down. You go down steps and then would be immersed. And then next to that, I have a picture of a graveyard. And it's that picture, the early church, not that we have to do immersion, but they really liked the imagery of being buried. Baptism is you're going down and being buried, symbolizing being buried with Christ. Well, that ties perfectly into the Romans 6 text, if you want to read that. Uh, From Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we go on living in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by his baptism into his death, so that just as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too would also walk in a new life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him to make our sinful body powerless so that we would not continue to serve sin. For the person who has died has been declared free from sin, and since we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has control over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, also consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what is your theme for the sermon for the Sunday? Hold on. (laughs) Baptized with Christ, no, baptized in Christ, buried in Christ, something like that. All right. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Hopefully the people remember it better than you do. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, so here Paul is making an argument to the Christians in Rome. You know, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So obviously there is this false teaching that is spooking around of saying, well, if we keep on sinning, well, then we get more grace. So that's a good thing. I really like um, Werner Franzman in his commentary on Romans wrote, this is cool satanic logic that if we're forgiven well then take advantage of that forgiveness keep on sinning because christ paid for it so you might as well enjoy it yeah yeah and then he says absolutely not we died to sin how can we live in it any longer that whole idea of dying to sin that we cannot reform the sinful nature it needs to be killed and reborn and then with that, too, as you were talking about earlier about being buried in Christ, there I think of Tom's baptism. So Tom and his girlfriend, Christina, they had come years ago. 
uh, back when they were teenagers and they had taken the adult confirmation classes, and Christina joined the church right away. But Tama took another year or so. And I still remember the day and where I was standing in her friendship room when Tom decide, decided to finally come up and say to me after worship, Hey, Pastor, uh, I've decided to become a member and I'd like to be baptized. I said, Fantastic. And he followed up with, And I'd like to be immersed. And in my head, I went through very quickly, Oh, no. And then, but he said, because I like the imagery of having my sins drowned in the water. And I said, fantastic. So we set up an immersion baptism, the only one that I've ever had. But that whole idea, he was very Lutheran. That's a Lutheran idea for for a brand new Lutheran, only been a Lutheran for a year of hearing God's truth and purity in our church and believing it and then liking that imagery. And that's the only immersion baptism I've had. And thankfully, it was still September, so it was warm enough, and no one has decided they wanted to be immersed in uh, in Lake Michigan in January because I saw pictures of my aunt the other day that she decided to do a polar plunge last week. That's what baptism in, in Lake Michigan would be at any time of the year because it doesn't get above 70 in Lake Michigan. But definitely this time of the year would be awful. I don't know. I went in Lake Michigan this summer, and it is much warmer down here in Racine than it ever was that oh. I remember growing up going to the beach in Manitowoc. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. No, I was going to say what you were mentioning there. That's exactly what Luther says in part four of baptism when he talks about how we remember our baptism every day and that every day in our struggle against sin, we drown our old Adam remembering how we were buried with Christ and our old man was crucified with Christ on the cross. And through baptism, we have a connection directly to the sacrifice of Jesus. And what I teach about that then is that we drown our old Adam daily in the waters of baptism. The only problem is that the old Adam is a very good swimmer, and he keeps coming back. Well, it's interesting, and I mentioned this when talking about the law, you know, proclaiming law and gospel with this text, is that it's a harsh preaching of the law that Paul has here. I mean, it's it's one of those sentences that's both law and gospel, depending on how you're applying it, that you are dead to sin. So stop sinning. And yet in chapter 7, Paul talks about, well, it's true, we are dead to sin, and yet as Christians, unfortunately, we're never free from that old nature until we die and go to heaven. And so every day we struggle, every day we fight. But because we're baptized, because that old man has been crucified with Christ, Paul says, um, we are no longer slaves to sin, that being born again, we can resist the temptations of Satan. We're going to fail, we're going to fall, we're going to stumble, but still each day we can resist, we can fight that because of the new man living in us, connected to Christ. Yeah, yeah. like you said, well, just stop sinning. <laughs> That's like saying to someone who is depressed, stop being depressed. Have you, have you ever seen that... that YouTube, I forgot what he is. My kids really like it. It's the, it's a pastor like doing a sermon and saying exactly what he thinks oh, to his no. congregation and go, just stop being bad. <laughs> You're making me look bad in front of God. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, but I think of that because I am not a person that is depressed. 
And for those that are depressed, you can't just say, well, stop being that way or someone who's mourning. Well, stop mourning. Uh, and, and I got a taste of that over Christmas break. It's the first time that I felt this way. Uh, I'd be wandering around the house and I told, and Shelly goes, are you bored? I said, yes, I am. And she said, you know, I am never bored. And that's like, well, she said, I like being bored. And she's, I know you don't. And I said, yeah, the problem is that I want, I have to do something. That's just my makeup, but I'm too lazy to do anything. And yet there was that, I, I don't want to use the term depressed. I've learned in my sermons that that's, I try and use that for clinical depression. It was more of a melancholy, a sadness, but you can't just tell someone, stop being sad, stop feeling melancholy, stop being depressed. That for that to change, it has to be an outside agent. And that's what we're talking about here. Stop sinning. The outside agent is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies you to, to do that. And, and the outside agent, going a little bit further, is because his, he says we're powerless, you have to crucify your sinful nature. Again, that's not reforming. You don't reform someone on the cross. The cross is meant to die on, and that's what we're supposed to do with our sinful nature. I think this is also a powerful text um, for those who are struggling as Christians with different forms of addiction because it can be hard. Uh, you can start identifying, well, I am an alcoholic or I am a drug abuser. I'm this. And it's like, no, you are buried. You died. You're buried. You are, your identity is in Christ. You struggle with this sin. And of course, if you cease that struggle, your faith can be destroyed by that sin. But if you're living in that struggle, no, your identity is in Christ. And you're right. That's so much of our culture today. You know, we identify as a white person or a black person, identify as gay or trans or a woman or a man, those kind of things. No, uh, your skin color, that's just an inch deep. Okay, that's not who you are. Your your sexuality, that's part of your mind, that's part of your body. That's not who you are. Not even being a man or woman necessarily is who you are. Uh, I had an interesting question that was texted to me this week, and it was from an unknown number, but it, it was just a simple sentence. Can someone who is gay be a pastor? And, and I gave a long answer to a short question. And I talked too, like we were saying about identity. And I talked about what the Bible says about homosexuality is a sin just like other sexual sins. And I talked about what the Bible has to say about a husband of but one wife for a pastor, uh, Lord willing, is blessed with children and so forth, that the bride of Christ, that's what we are, and then Christ is the groom, and so that imagery of man and woman, not men and men and so forth. But then talking about this identity, that uh, this if a someone is repentant of sexual sins, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual sins, then yes, he could become a pastor or, or remain a pastor and so forth, but it's all about the repentance. Repentance. You die to your sin. You are crucifying your sinful nature, that sexual sinful nature, that you don't want to live in that any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who is gay decides that uh, he now all of a sudden he likes women, because that may not happen. 
but he decides that his cross to bear is, I'm going to remain celibate, even though I have these strong feelings that my sinful nature has within me and the devil and his demons are bringing on from outside of me, I'm not going to act on them. That's the cross that he's willing to bear in order to serve Christ as just a regular Christian or as a Christian pastor. And I think that's that's so important um, because we talk about the struggle. Um, and I think oftentimes we focus on the homosexual side of things and say, well, that's, you know, that's their identity. No, that's not their identity. That would be like saying, well, I'm a red-blooded man. My identity is lusting after every woman I see. No, that that's a struggle. That's a sin, um, and it's a cross. It's a cross to bear. It's just some people struggle being attracted to members of the same the same sex. That's sinful. The same way it is for someone to be attracted and to lust after members of the opposite sex. As Christ says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in her heart or in his heart. Um, and so again, that's a struggle that all that Christians have. And even within that, there's men who struggle more with that than others. Yeah. And that, you know, I might, uh, identify as being five, six, but now they wear cowboy boots. I'm five, seven, but that's not who I am. That's what we're talking about here. So then Nathan, where is the power in baptism? Well, the power is, and I like the way Luther talks about this, that it's not water. It's not the water. It's not that there's some some magic in the water or some special water. It's in the Word and the promise of God uh, connected to the water. That's what we talk about, the two elements, that it's the Word and the water together because that's how Christ instituted it. But it's the power and the promise of God. Yeah, because that— that power and promise of the word and the water is connected to Christ. And that, Paul says here, is connected to Christ's cross, his crucifixion, and his resurrection from the tomb. It, that's what gives baptism its power to save. We are crucifying our sinful nature with the, with the water of baptism. And every time we repent of our sin, it's as if we are being rebaptized. And then Christ's resurrection that he was no longer dead. We no longer have to be dead in our sin. We're now alive in Christ to live a new life. And I think it's important, the way Paul talks about it here, baptism isn't just a symbol of faith. Baptism is what connects us to Christ. Yeah, and so then we are fulfilling our vocation as a Christian. We don't have to do big and glorious things as Christians. We talked about this in our Bible study this morning on on the book I've written, Resisting the Dragon's Beast. And the last question I asked our participants is, now what are you going to do to fulfill Solomon's words and Proverbs of speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves? And there was a lot of silence. And, And I said, you don't have to do grand and glorious things. Just do one soul at a time and recounting the story of the little boy that's on the seashore that the ocean has washed up all of these starfish and he's throwing them into the ocean and an older man comes by and says, you know, what are you doing? You can't save them all. It it doesn't matter. And the little boy said, well, it matters to that one. And he throws another one in. 
one soul at a time. That's what we do, fulfilling our vocation as a Christian, that we're uh, doing that vocation with our children, with our grandchildren, with a parent, with our neighbors, and so forth. Uh, And then here I also like to tie it into our Paschal candle, because we'll light our Paschal candles, again, uh, because we're blessed with several baptisms, the next two weeks we'll be uh, lighting the Paschal candle, which is set next to the next to the baptismal font. And so, one of the things that I did when I became the pastor at Epiphany, and then later on the pastor at New Hope, which became Water of Life, is I moved the baptismal font to the middle because it was always off to the side and only pulled out for baptisms. But what that really shows people, our members and visitors, is that baptism's not that all important. But having the baptismal font front and center is that the altar symbolizes God's presence. So how can I come into God's presence? It's through baptism. And so even if they don't get it, symbolically, hopefully they're, they're picking this up. And then the Paschal candle is next to the the baptismal font. And I'll be honest, I just learned this last year. We only pulled the Paschal candle out for baptisms and then lit it. Uh, Then I learned, no, it's supposed to sit there all year, just not remain lit. And so the three times of the year that it's lit, and I drill this into my confirmands, is it's lit for baptisms, is lit for the season of Easter, beginning with the Easter Vigil, one of those ancient festivals that ties us to the past, like I mentioned before, uh, because Christ died and rose again. And then the third time it's lit is for a funeral. And the reason for a funeral is that saint has died in the flesh and now is risen to life, just as Christ died and is risen. And something else I mentioned in my sermon, the way we begin... I don't know if it was this way in the old hymnal. I know it's in the new funeral liturgy. Is The liturgy begins with remembrance of baptism. And again, tying back to what Paul says here in Romans 6, that baptism through baptism we died and were buried with Christ. And as we bury a believer, we point to their baptism, saying this now connects them not only were they buried with Christ, Paul says this connects them directly to the resurrection of Christ, Christ who destroyed the power of the grave and rose again. And I like how Paul points out here too, never to die again. We think of some of the other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead like Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Christ never died again. Christ rose and is victorious. And that's the hope we now have that we die and we will be raised again in Christ. And, and with that, uh, you know, what you're saying, tying us to Christ, uh, I was just reminded of uh, the occasional services setting uh, bapt- Holy Baptism 2 uh, from the previous red Christian worship hymnal. Uh, this is what I still use for baptism. Be- and part of it is because I like what Luther wrote in what's called the, the flood prayer. Uh, he says, let us pray, Holy God, mighty Lord, Gracious Father, through your stern judgment, the unbelieving world was destroyed by the flood, but according to your great mercy, you saved Noah and his family. You engulfed stubborn Pharaoh and his army in the waters of the Red Sea, but led your people through those same waters to safety on dry land. In the waters of the Jordan, your own son was baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit. 
By these signs you foreshadow the precious cleansing bath which you give us in holy baptism. So it, baptism ties us to those symbols in the Old Testament of the flood, that we drowned, uh, or God drowned all those wicked unbelievers, and we drown our sinful nature in baptism. Just like God drowned Pharaoh and his Egyptian army in the waters of the Red Sea when they came flowing back upon them, we drown our sinful nature. And then as Jesus got dirty in the waters of the Jordan River, I talked about that in this week's hymn, of the, hymn devotion, uh, he began his work of, well, he had begun his work in the womb, but he's continuing that work, getting our sins upon himself in the Jordan River. And then because of that, Luther continues in the prayer, clinging to your command and promise, we ask that you would look with favor on the baptized. Through this water of baptism, drown in him all sin inherited from Adam and any other evil he may do. Set him apart from the unbelieving world and hold him safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church. Keep him always fervent and spirit and joyful in hope so that he may honor your holy name and at last receive together with all your people the promised inheritance of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I just love that imagery of the flood the parting of the Red Sea, and Jesus being baptized. Anything else you want to bring up with this text? No, other than something I should have mentioned before when we were talking about our identity in Christ, one of the things that I really, really struck me doing this text study is how we can point to our baptism as the beginning of our identity. Um, one of my new favorite hymns, um, which I don't remember being in the red hymnal. Maybe it was, it was, was not. Um, is it was, it was in the supplement. It was in the supplement. Okay, uh, six seventy nine. God's own child. I gladly say it. And verse three. Just this struck me as very Luther esque of throwing, throwing our faith in the teeth of Satan, yeah. uh, which is Satan. Hear this proclamation. I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation. I am not so soon enticed. Now that to the font I've traveled, all your might has come unraveled, and against your tyranny, God my Lord unites with me. And just that, as Christians, when we're, when we're struggling with our sins, when we're feeling, feeling guilty, um, I don't know if others sometimes I struggle with a little bit of insomnia, and you never have good thoughts when you can't sleep <laughs> at three in the morning. And, you know, you sometimes think about things you've done, things you wish you hadn't done, and it just seems like that's a time when, when Satan really attacks you and you can point to my baptism, you can point to your baptism and say, no, I'm baptized. I am a child of Christ. And because of that, all of my sins have been forgiven. You, you cannot accuse me of sin because they're paid for in Christ. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that verse too. Uh, I mean, I love that hymn and for the same reason you mentioned and that specific verse, I think of the imagery that we can use this when the devil is coming at us hard, just yelling at him, get behind me, Satan. I am baptized into Christ. Or throwing ink pots. Yeah, like Luther. Yeah. Or I was thinking of the same thing, not so much the ink pots, but uh, in the Luther movie where he calls the devil a, a four-letter word. Uh, I don't know if he really said that, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he did in the German. Well, it, it reminds me of another Luther Luther quote I remember reading, which is 
again, Luther being fat, scatological at his best. Um, I don't think I'll repeat it for the podcast, but um, you can look it up where Luther talks about telling Satan what he can go do with himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. So those are the things that Luther could say, and you and I can't. But that's that's where if I ever want to say it, I just this is what Luther says, and then you're okay. Uh, but go back to your baptism. I think there's a renewed uh, emphasis on baptism, and that's something I try and bring up in my sermons too. Uh, almost every sermon, at least every other sermon, I am bringing up baptism or the Lord's Supper or both. Because I think that so often we have fallen into the temptation to think of baptism as something that happened to us as infants. And that was nice, but it doesn't have any power for us. Ah, That's why you have to read what Paul writes in Romans 6. Baptism is powerful for you every day. So remember your baptism. So we'll wrap it up here. So celebrate the epiphany of our Lord. Celebrate your baptism. This is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life Lutheran Church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.